Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is Episode 30, The Quality of Randomized Controlled Trials in the Rheumatologic Literature from 1998 to 2018. So this is kind of a special podcast because this is actually a project that I did for the Rheumatology Winter Clinical Symposium. I don't often talk about my own work because I don't think it's as important as the work that I've talked about in prior podcasts, but I thought this was a good way to get back into the swing of things, and because this project is part of the reason why I've been on a hiatus from podcasting for the past two months, I figured I should share it with everybody and try to explain myself a little bit. So this project came about because I've been spending all this time reading these trials and talking about them, and I've noticed a number of patterns that I wanted to investigate further. In particular, the past 20 years is an interesting time period for rheumatology. In the late 1990s, we first got infliximab, a TNF inhibitor, and a tanercept for rheumatoid arthritis, and since then it's been an explosion of pricey biologic therapies that actually cause very real benefits in our patients' lives. So what I decided to do was to assess the quality of randomized controlled trials. I decided the best way to do that was to look at the top three rheumatology journals. I identified these using the H-Index, the Schimago Journal and Country Rake, and the Immunet 2016 Top Journals Assessment. I surveyed all clinical randomized controlled trials that assessed a pharmacologic intervention against a comparator, and then I used the years 1998, 2008, and 2018. I looked at interventions, metrics of RCT quality, absolute risk estimates, p-values, and who funded the study. I used the variables that I got to construct a quality scale that ranked studies from 1 to 10 by how good they were, 1 being the worst study in the sample and 10 being the best. I then assessed bivariate associations between variables using chi-square testing for categorical variables and either independent samples t-test or one-way ANOVA for continuous variables. Not going to lie, I bit off more than I meant to chew. I ultimately went through 3,338 titles. 3,067 did not meet inclusion criteria, so that meant that I read 186 papers in their entirety, ultimately including 85 papers in the study itself. The journals that made the cut were the Annals of Rheumatic Disease, Rheumatology, and Arthritis and Rheumatology. So what did I find? The main RCT quality metrics were blinding, whether or not a primary outcome was identified, not going to lie, a lot of studies don't do this, patient reported outcome measures, whether power calculation was performed, whether sensitivity analysis was done, whether the authors adjusted for multiple hypothesis testing, and whether or not they used intention to treat analysis. Over time, not a whole lot changed. There was an increase in the use of sensitivity analyses from 5 to 37% and then 26% in 2018. And there was an increase in the frequency by which people used an intention to treat analysis. It went from 58% in 1998 to 87% in 2018. The overall quality scale was not different between the different years. So in general, it doesn't look like RCTs have become higher quality to me over time. Now, what was interesting, and this has become a recurring joke on this podcast, is that industry-funded studies tended to be of higher quality than non-industry-funded studies. With regard to blinding, 53% of non-industry and 88% of industry-funded studies were double-blind. 37% of non-industry and 77% of industry-funded studies included patient-reported outcome measures. Intention-to-treat analysis was 58% in non-industry and 85% in industry. And then the overall quality scale that I constructed was higher on the industry side, 6.6, versus 4.5 on the non-industry side. If we'd had a little more power, I suspect that the primary outcome measures and adjustment for multiple hypothesis testing would have also been significant. Either way, by a variety of metrics, industry funding was associated with a higher quality of study. Now over time, there are a couple of other important things that changed. The most important of these is whether or not the study included an active comparator. 
What do I mean by that? Well, in 1998, 42% of studies tested a drug against a drug. So methotrexate against sulfasalazine or methotrexate against a TNF inhibitor. By 2018, that's only 13%. So we went from half of studies testing drug against drug to one in 10 testing drug against drug. Instead, what we're doing is we're comparing a new drug against placebo therapy. There's nothing wrong with that. I think to some degree, we're a victim of our own success in the sense that we have more drugs, they're wonderful, and we want to see if they work. At the same time, I think there's a lot of room to do these kinds of trials. If you have a patient who presents with myositis, do you start Celsept, methotrexate, Imuran? There's no real data, and this is a fundamental question that we need to know the answer to. Interestingly, industry funding has not really gone up over time. 74% of trials in 1998 were industry funded. 84% of trials were industry funded in 2018. That sounds different, but it wasn't significant. I do think that number is important, though. With 84% of our trials being run by industry, the incentives that drive industry are going to have a big influence on the quality of our literature. Like I said a minute ago, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Industry runs really good studies. I do think, though, that the incentives push towards less of this active comparator research. For industry, it doesn't make sense to pit your drug against another drug. There's a chance your drug will lose, it's expensive, and you need a really big end to do that kind of study. It's much easier to pit your drug against placebo. Now, there are a number of trials that do this, so it's not the industry is not doing any of it, but it's much less common. Last but not least, I did a funnel plot comparing precision versus effect size. Check the Twitter feed if you want to take a look at it. So on the y-axis is the number of patients in the study. On the x-axis is the absolute risk reduction or the percent improvement. So what you see in this chart is really striking. Small studies reported large absolute risk reductions and large percent improvements. As the studies got larger and the n went up, you saw a marked decrease in the likelihood of a study reporting a big treatment effect. You can never trust phase one studies because they often overestimate treatment effects. This is also true of phase two studies when you go from phase two to phase three. Frequently, phase two studies will overestimate the ultimate treatment effect. The other thing you see is almost no negative studies. Now, there are two takes on this. The first one is the cynical take, which is that there's significant publication bias and negative studies just aren't getting done. I think that is not an unreasonable interpretation, but I think there's also an optimistic way to look at this. In particular, you could say that by the time you get to a randomized controlled trial, we have a pretty high pretest probability of a therapy being effective. So you wouldn't expect this to be a 50-50 proposition. Rather, you'd expect something like 70 or 80% of the things to work. And in that case, it does make sense that you'd see a shift of this graph rightwards. Now I'm critical of other people's work, and it's only fair to be critical of my own. And there were a lot of flaws with this study. We only assessed three years out of 20 years. So those years may not be generalizable. We haven't performed review by a co-author, and who knows how many mistakes I made. The study was not powered to detect small differences between groups. Even though it was an unbelievable amount of work and the sample size was pretty large, we just didn't quite get there. Interpretation of some of the quality metrics may be subjective. In particular, I struggled with the sensitivity analysis. A lot of the time, an author won't say explicitly that they did a sensitivity analysis, but as you read through the paper, you notice that they basically did. Another issue is that the quality of studies may be limited to reporting. Perhaps in the past, people did intention to treat, but they just didn't explicitly say it because we hadn't established how important it was to check that box yet. And then finally, publication patterns may have changed over time. Perhaps we're making tons and tons of high-impact studies today that do active comparative research, and it's just being published in the New England Journal. 
That's part of the problem with only assessing three rheumatology journals. Overall, though, I really enjoyed this study, and I do think it says a couple of important things. One is that intention to treat analysis has become more common, but RCT quality otherwise has been relatively constant. It also tells us that industry funds the vast majority of the studies that are published in our journals, 84% in 2018. These studies tend to be better, more appropriately blinded, they're more likely to report patient-reported outcome measures, use intention to treat, and they have an overall higher quality. Now, over time, fewer studies have included an active comparator. I think this is important, and I do think we're losing something by not doing this research anymore. Finally, smaller studies were associated with larger effect sizes, so you should be a little bit cautious when you see studies with a small n. One small take-home point is that rheumatologic interventions have a high absolute risk reduction. The average absolute risk reduction in a study was 17.5. So that means that the therapies assessed by randomized controlled trials in rheumatology, you need to give them to about five patients to have one of the primary outcomes. It's not too bad. It's one reason I really enjoy this field. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. This is the last of my work that I'll be talking about for quite some time, as there has been a lot of things that came down the pipeline that I'm really excited to podcast about soon. Now, one thing I'm going to be doing differently going forward is I'm going to make a kind of visual abstract, and I'll be tweeting that out at my Twitter handle, at EBRoom, R-H-E-U-M. Please go follow me there. I think it's helpful because it allows you to give me feedback if you find something that I said wrong, and it lets me keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast. Check out the visual abstracty thing as well, and let me know what you think. I think it'll be a nice little way to share important slides from the studies that I'm discussing, and a handy reference for people to have going forward if you want to look back and say, oh, what did that trial we talked about in episode 24 show? I think that's it for this week of the podcast. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in. I'm very excited to be back and looking forward to coming back next week to discuss another great trial in rheumatology. <laughs>